Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've done since the pandemic shifted us to uh, live streaming and YouTube. We also have live audiences. Um, But today we have Alexander Hudson with us, uh, the author of The Soul of Civility. Um, And uh, we have a a very interesting look into, well, first of all, the difference between civility and politeness is a very important thing. But also this whole idea about civility and who's written about it, who's talked about it, and what stories have been told about it, and why, obviously, we we have a need to remember about this in our current uh, situation politically and, and just socially after the pandemic. So first of all, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Alexandra. Really great to have you here. Thank um, you for having me. Thrilled to be here. And uh, I'd like to start with where you started. You started with a quote, um, which I thought was just great. Um, and it was, about, um, it was about suspicion of authority, I think. You know, that politeness, <laughs> politeness and suspicion of authority don't always go together. And you told stories about your DC time. So why, why don't we start there? It seems, <laughs> it, seems like, <laughs> it seems like a good place to start for what you experienced. So I came to my interest in this topic, honestly, um, this topic of civility. My mother is something of an expert on manners. She's called Judy the manners lady. Mm -hmm. And while I was writing this book, actually, I discovered that my mother is one of four women who are internationally renowned experts on manners and etiquette named Judy. There are four of them. I don't know if it was a generational thing. My mother always says that she was named after Judy Garland after the Wizard of Oz uh-huh. came out. So it was just like a generation of, of, of Judy's and several of them went to the etiquette industry. So my mother is my favorite of these Judiths in the, in the etiquette business. And uh, you know, she's the epitome of, um, Civility, true civility, as I define it in my book, just utter, utter self-forgetfulness, utter other-orientedness. Our home growing up was this revolving door of of strangers and 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 newcomers to our community. We had homestays live with us. We had you know immigrants dine with us, and and my mom just is is passionate about manners and social norms to the extent that they help us do this this beautiful and often fraught thing called life together across mm-hmm. deep difference. And so despite, so my mother's like an expert in, in true civility, but she also taught us about the ways and means of politeness. And I am someone who is constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate rules. <laughs> I hate being told what to do. Even to this day, I cringe when someone tells me what to do. I'm like, I want to know why. I hunger and I always have hungered for a justification for why we do things the way we do them and why, you know, should we follow a norm or expectation just because it's the way it's been done, just because mm. somewhere, sometime, some self-appointed authority, some Judy the Manners lady of some other era decided that we should. Is that sufficient rationale for following blindly uh, a rule? So I always I always questioned norms and these rules, hungered to understand them at a, at a deeper level. But I followed them because my mother promised me that they would lead us to lead me to success um, in, in work, school and life. And she was right. Mm-hmm. Until I found myself at the United States Department of Education. I was in federal <laughs> government from uh, from 2017 to 2018, a very divided time in our in our uh, in our world, in our country. And there 
it was this environment of anti-human flourishing, to be quite honest with mm-hmm. you. It was, um, I, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were people with sharp elbows. There were people who were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there were people who I thought were my people at first. They mm-hmm. were they were polished and poised and polite, you know, well-versed in the ways and means of politeness. Mm-hmm. But these are the people who would smile and flatter me one moment and stab me and others in the back the next, the moment that we no longer served their their um, their purposes. And I realized several things from this experience. One is that these two extremes largely represent the extremes in our public life today. We have mm-hmm. the you know the kind of kumbaya people who are, who want us to just do life together, you know, be, be nicer to one another, and kind of want to tone police and just um, yeah 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 just just be just be nice, you know. And then there's this other contingent that says no, um, you know, the stakes are too high, and 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 they, they they're bellicose and aggressive, and and there's this kind of m- misunderstanding that that the the bullying and the aggression will like puncture the hypocrisy of just the niceness of the mm-hmm. polish mm-hmm. and and that that the bullying is like an antidote the aggression is an antidote to the politeness but i actually realized this is my second thing second insight that they seem like polar opposites but they're actually very similar that mm-hmm. the extreme hostility and extreme politeness mm-hmm. the the both both um inherently um they instrumentalize others they insufficiently appreciate the dignity of what it means to be human, and they see other people as means to their selfish ends. The aggressive and hostile contingent sees other people as um, pawns to be bowled over, you know, mm. steamrolled. And the polite contingent sees others as pawns to be manipulated. Mm-hmm. But both have an insufficiently high view of the gift of being human and the, and the respect we are owed no to others by virtue of this gift of being human, by virtue of our inherent dignity and irreducible worth as human beings. Um, and then that, that, that led me to a third idea, uh, insight, that there is an essential distinction between civility and politeness. Mm-hmm. That, that, that politeness is, is etiquette, it's manners, it's, it's technique, it's behavior, where civility is, is, is internal. It's a disposition mm-hmm. of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. Mm-hmm. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting someone, someone sometimes actually loving someone requires being impolite, breaking the rules of propriety and niceness and etiquette for the sake of having an honest but uncomfortable conversation, engaging in robust debate that that we and we and the the undercurrent, the argument of my book is that we need less of this faux faux civility, which goes by Mm -hmm. politeness, Mm -hmm. you know, um, tone policing and, and, and just trying to polish over difference and more true civility, actually respecting others even when it means being impolite, making people uncomfortable by having uncomfortable conversations, even um, risking offending someone by broaching a topic that might feel taboo, that that sometimes there are, there are important conversations that need to be had. And we, we can't be satisfied just polishing over those differences as the etymology of these words suggest, mm-hmm. uh, politeness suggests. We have to be able to grapple with, um, with difference head on. Yeah, a couple of things. Very interesting to me because when I read your book, the first thing I thought was, boy, did she have fun when she realized that she didn't have to be polite, but she could still listen to her mother. Because, you know, like, like I can be civil, you know, I found a place where I can be against authority and still have the basis of what my mother taught me. 
Um, oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The whole book is an extension of my anti-authoritarianism. Exactly. <laughs> and you'll, you'll, uh, one of the characters in the novel, a six-year-old boy, I had him say, was someone said, his mother told him, you just have to do it. It's a tradition. You know, it's authority. It's a tradition. Tradition. You know, uh, tradition <laughs> must be all those things that people do that they don't know why they do them. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it's That's pretty, right. pretty much a good definition of it. So, um, so in D.C., you ran up against what people, you know, lots of people who are, you know, uh, sincere and are trying to help and stuff like that, run into them in, in uh, you know, academic departments, uh, you know, uh, at hospitals where they work. This kind, of, this kind of attitude. But as you said, I think you pinpointed it. It is that they think of other people as uh, pawns in their game. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to say anything too strong in their favor, but... It, people do see the world through their own, in their own minds. And so it looks like they're the center of the universe. Um, everybody. And you have to kind of be trained to, to come out of that uh, and to see you're just one of many. And, and I, I think that your history of this whole idea is a lot of people trying to do that training. It's a it's a great it's a great point if I don't, if you don't mind me just taking that and running with it for yeah. a moment this this notion of cultivation mm-hmm. that this is not natural but it has to be cultivated mm-hmm. is 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 actually quite central the, the the metaphor of the garden is the central metaphor of my book I, I say that you know civilization itself is like a garden. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 not natural. We each have a little plot of land in, in this garden of civilization, and all we can control in our plot of land is um, what we what we what we cultivate, and what is and what is cultivated within us by you know um, the the other plots of land that that have a say in our lives, like family members. But mm-hmm. that that as, especially as we grow uh, and become you know autonomous adults that all we can we choose for ourselves what what we plant what we cultivate and we can either plant um seeds of of beautiful flowers and regenerative crops that bring beauty and abundant um you know life-giving crops to the soil but also to surrounding plots of land um that that bring joy and delight and contribute and foster this joint garden of civilization comprised of each individual plots of land, each, each citizen. Or we can, with our words and actions, with our habits, um, nurture and cultivate seeds of corrosive invasive species, species that zap nutrients from the soil and that corrode into other plots of land as well. And um, that all we can control is our plot of land. We can't control what other people um, choose to do, but that it is a, a true civilization is comprised of of individuals who choose to, as Samuel Johnson said, um, uh, to tend to the needs of the poor, the vulnerable, those crucially that can't just do things for us in return, those that can never do anything for us in return. Mm-hmm. That was Samuel Johnson, the uh, English writer's definition of um, of civilization. He's he's the author of uh, the first English dictionary. He said like a true civilization is how a society treats the the poor and the vulnerable in a society. Mm-hmm. And so the, this idea that that uh, uh, this notion of cultivation of, of, of the garden that it's not natural to us to to put put others first. Like I, I, I get to this duality in in human nature that we are profoundly social as a species. We become fully human in relationship with others, and yet morally and biologically, we're defined also by self love. We're driven to meet our own needs before others, and those two things aspects of who we are, our intention, the social, the self, the, 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 the love of others and love of self. And that is why this thing called life together, mm-hmm. friendship, community, civilization itself, democracy, 
is never a foregone conclusion. It is always fragile. It is always precarious. And it depends on our, our, how we choose to cultivate these habits of, of civility, of other orientedness, of respecting the fundamental dignity and worth of our fellow human beings in our everyday. So I have a question about your mother. So she, you said you, she was the, the epitome of self-forgetfulness, I think is the way you put it. And, and yet, was she a happy person or an unhappy person? She is the most joy-filled human being you will ever meet in your life. She is utter effervescence and ebullience. Like she just brings like this ball of energy and joy and light wherever she goes. It is remarkable. And the only person I've ever met whom it, it matches her and, it, and in fact exceeds her in her, her joy and, and, and um, for life and others is my grandmother, who I talk about <laughs> as well, um, and who, who was like an order of magnitude more zealous about the human social project. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you um, uh, remember that part of the book, this yeah. idea of the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul that is the yeah. power of one person to make to, to create a ripple effect, a mellifluous echo, one magnanimous soul, one one self-forgetful person, one great-souled human being who is so self-composed they can just be focused on others throughout their life and throughout their day, um, as opposed to being bogged down by the pettiness and nitpicking, like oh this person you know irked me and so I'm gonna take it out on this person, either the kind yeah. of kicking that the, the vicious cycle, the sort of kicking the dog um, mentality. That that the opposite is also true. That one person brightening your day. You know, what, like my grandmother or my mother have done this millions of times, like small acts of kindness have this create a mellifluous echo. They create a ripple effect. And like one person living their life according to that other oriented logic has a an echo that we will never and we will never see or fully appreciate this side of eternity. Like they invested in people, they did things great and small that they will never they don't even remember, but that changed people's lives and made the world better and brighter. So uh, let's do a little bit of etymology. You have a little bit of etymology in your book, too. So you use the word gen, generous, and, and, and you, you showed how gentleman, progeny, it's all related to the word, and the word means birth, I think, if I remember correctly, in, in uh, Greek and Latin. And so we go back to that time. So why don't you say a little bit about how those things fit together, and then I'm going to go back to your mother. Yeah, it's a it's a, a great... I love etymology. I love the history, the stories behind words. Etymology is throughout my book because it's not just fascinating um, uh, the stories uh, behind our language. It's often very illuminating. And it's also a great mnemonic to help us remember remember concepts. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, the, the, the relationship between um, the etymology of birth and our word generous was the, it's very classist. Mm -hmm. It's very hierarchical. It goes back to a time where it was thought that only the wealthy could be generous. Right. Only if you had stuff to give, could you be generous? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, the reality is there are many ways of being generous. Mm -hmm. Anyone can be generous. It's that you can be generous emotionally, psychologically, intellectually. Mm -hmm. and, and like I talk about in the book, intellectual hospitality. Can we entertain mm -hmm. ideas that can contradict our own? Mm -hmm. in, in our head. That's a form of intellectual hospitality, intellectual generosity. And so I love that. And this this is one, you know, practical benefit of our egalitarian society without rigid classes that we are born in and die in. That was a lot of human history. The way the lot you were given at birth was the lot that you died with. There was not a lot of social and economic mobility that we do enjoy today. And um, the same is true with the etymology of, of our word ph philanthropy, 
Mm-hmm. The word philanthropy comes the Greek philanthropia, philo meaning love, mm-hmm. and anthropos meaning humanity mm-hmm. and human being. And that's what philanthropy is. Today, we associate philanthropy with, you know, billionaires who are pledging all of their wealth to fight, you know, malaria or mm-hmm. polio or, you know, great, you know, important causes. And yet love of humanity is a value that that we can and should embody, all of us, every single one of us. And this is actually, um, you know, a defining idea in my book that this is, this is you know, back toward this idea of cultivation, that civility is cultivated. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book on education, that the, pro- the educational project is creating good humans. And what a good human is, is, is cultivating with us an appreciation of the profound gift of being human in both ourselves and in others, that that really the educational project is cultivating philanthropy, love of humanity, not just a specific contingent of philanthropy, right? Not just the people who are like us, who agree with us, who can do things for us in return, but humanity in general. That is what the educational project ought to be, what it often has been, at least as an aspiration. And it's an aspiration that can guide and should guide how we educate today. So I'd like to go back to Socrates before we hit uh, the epic of Gilgamesh and some of the other stuff from the past that you, you bring in here. But uh, Socrates mentioned that people are always, always think of themselves as good, but what they miss is their perspective. They, what is in the distance they don't see properly and therefore they, they make misjudgments about their self-interest as opposed to a tension between the self-interest and se- between self-love and uh, love of others. It seems to me that the conclusion from a Socratic point of view is that unselfishness is an intelligent form of self-interest. Hmm. Your, your mother yeah. and your grandmother were both happy. And, and hmm. that's, what we're doing. that's what we're doing this for. Everything. It's all to get that emotion. So if, if it's in your self-interest, it won't be such a tense experience if you see it, if you see it clearly. Um, and I think that that's part of the educational project is to, to say this, not that you just completely give everything away, but that being generous to other people. You know, one, of the, one of the conclusions that I have is that uh, you should be even more generous to other people than you would ever expect anyone to be to you. To me, that's better than the golden rule because that, a golden rule is a kind of equivalent thing. But y- y- if, you, if you realize that your generosity is enjoyable, mm-hmm. what's stopping you? What's stopping you from giving it away? It's free. It's free to give away. Hmm. It's such a great insight. I love, I love everything uh, about that. And I, I, I originally had a whole footnote in my book. I think it got nixed in, in the editing process, uh-huh. um, dedicated to what some have called enlightened self-interest. This right. is an idea given to us from Alexis de Tocqueville, from Adam Smith. Um, um, I had, you know, I talked about uh, that there is that there are different gradations of self-interest, right? Mm-hmm. Like Bernard Mandeville, famously in his Fable of the Bees, um, said that actually. Vice is a virtue. Single-mindedly pursuing your self-interest can actually pr- produce public benefits in society. So, anyway, I, I have a nuanced, sophisticated discussion um, in, in that that I think got that got nixed, but I should publish that elsewhere because it is an important distinction. But I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. That when we single-mindedly act in our own interest in ways that alienate ourselves from others, mm-hmm. we hurt ourselves mm-hmm. at, at many at many levels, like both practically and societally. Like we when we alien when we cut ourselves off from when we when we're selfish, like people don't want to be around us. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll tell you a story. One time when I was in government. 
a colleague came up to me and asked me for help with a project. He told me I looked, you know, radiant that day mm. and I was brilliant and no one could help me, help him but me. And mm. I was happy to help. He didn't have to flatter me like that <laughs> gratu gratuitously for, for me to be willing to help him. Um, but I didn't realize though he was expecting me to do his entire project for him. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I was like, okay, I've committed, like I did it. And then he passed off my work as his own and, you know, took all the credit and went to all the meetings that I was prepared for because I had done the work, but he, <laughs> you know, he did not. But, and then after that, gone were the pleasantries, you know, gone were the niceties that yeah. he had gotten what he wanted from me. And that was that. And I mean, that is absolutely exactly illustrative of your point. It's short-sighted. Like we worked together, you know, for, oh. for almost a year, like we were going to have to coexist and, and he might need help from me in the future, you know? So for him to be so nakedly self-interested, actually, I think was harmful long run practically. But a whole argument of my book is that incivility, cruelty, malice, like ma maniacally um, being fixated and pursuing our own self-interest uh, is also hurts us at a soulish level as well that that uh, and I'm, I'm that that, that civility is its own reward and 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 uh, vice and and incivility cruelty to others is its own is its own punishment i'm happy, happy to say more about that if, if you and want that's where i'm going next because uh cruelty you you mentioned it a few times and uh, I, I think it's one of the brilliant ideas in uh, the harry potter series uh, by jk rowling is that is that why why does anybody follow the bad guy bad guys, Lord Voldemort, the bad guys, Hitler, whatever. Why does anybody do that? Only for mm. one reason, because they're given permission to be cruel. They're given authority to be cruel to mm. other people. And, and there's, a, there's an anger inside lots of minds, of course, and for lots of reasons. That's, we, we won't go into that. But that anger makes people want to be cruel because it makes yeah. them feel better in the hierarchy if they make even more misery next to them, but you see, mm -hmm. it, it's not in their mm -hmm. self-interest in any, if you step back and see what you're doing, it's not in your self-interest to surround yourself with even more miserable people than before. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly understand, you, you take, take an example of somebody who loses their job. You know, they have a relatively good family life going on and they lose their job after 15 years, it comes as a shock to them, they go home and they hit their wife or they mm -hmm. hit their children or something. They never did that before. Why? Because mm -hmm. I think they're trying to keep the hierarchy the way it was. And they're mm -hmm. feeling miserable, they push the next one down. So mm -hmm. it, it just seems to me that that idea of cruelty, and people talk about evil and it's not well-defined, but cruelty is the center of that, I think. Yes. Because who wants people around who are getting happy from you being miserable? Because that's basically mm -hmm. what it is. They're enjoying mm -hmm. you being miserable. Um, that's, not, that's not a good thing to be around, just like you said about mm -hmm. your colleague. And uh, uh, I had, had a colleague or a boss in, in a law firm in New York who I really never worked for, but he insisted that I do a certain project for him. And I not only did the project, but I found a fault in it um, and fixed it. And he was absolutely furious with me for showing that he had made a mistake and tried to get me fired. That, that, that was how, how he responded to it. So it's, it's very common uh, and it's very funny uh, in its way, uh, but you've got to get used to it that that's what's out there um, if you're going to try to thread your way through this world. You make an excellent point that um, we insufficiently appreciate the wisdom behind this cliche that mm -hmm. hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. Like when someone is thoughtless or malicious, it's so easy. Like the, for me, the baser part of myself mm -hmm. to be like, that's a bad person, like mm -hmm. avoid, you know, stay away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My grandmother 
on the other hand, had by far the more, and my mother as well, for that matter, had by far the more noble and and true approach, which is that, you know, this person who is acting callously, thoughtlessly, maliciously, that this is not about me. Mm-hmm. This is about them, mm-hmm. you know, and where they are at in life and like probably what happened this morning or what happened just before this interaction, you know, when someone slams a door in your face or cuts you off and yells at you and curses at you in traffic or something like that, like that doesn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was excellent at keeping that in mind. You know, me, I'm like, that's a horrible person. Like, you know, very, very, easy, <laughs> very sure. human to, to be like, you know, um, judge people based on what they do exactly and um my grandmother's excellent at those are called store and i call these stories of um of condemnation Mm -hmm. like we tell stories about the behavior and uh and words and deeds of others based on um what we see and we tell stories of condemnation like that's a bad person because of what they've done my my grandmother was excellent at telling stories of exoneration you know they're not a bad person there's a, a person having a bad day and um like separating the, the the conduct from who the person was and then going a step further and saying, how can I make their day a little bit brighter? Like they're obviously very wounded and they're carrying a lot of, of baggage and, and hurt with them. You know, what can I do to make life a little bit more gentle for them? Because I think our temptation is like, you know, someone comes at us like a vicious animal, we bite right back, right? Which often only adds to the hurt and woundedness that's often just beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we insufficiently appreciate the way that the way that anger is like a mask for, for, for hurt and woundedness. And, and, um, and so, you know, how might we act differently if we instead tried to tell ourselves stories of exoneration, you know, that exonerate people from, from, um, from, from, you know, not from culpability. Of course, people are responsible for their actions, but at least not making it all about us. Like, oh, this person's out to get us and telling ourselves a, a, a story about the world conspiring to like make us miserable, which, which is easy to do sometimes, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, we, again, back to our inherent self-love that is like gravity we have to fight it even telling us a story about someone else's malice being about us you know when it's really probably more about them having a bad day that's an expression (laughs) of our self-love right coming rearing its ugly head the irish philosopher iris murdoch Mm. she called it the the fat relentless ego that has to be conquered every moment of every day and and we insufficiently appreciate that you know democracy civilization a free and flourishing society that we mm-hmm. that we enjoy the benefits of it depends on our our conquering that fat relentless ego not letting it drive us um and and pursuing our own interests maniacally um that considering the needs of others alongside of ourselves in our everyday and it's a decision that we have to make you know every day and every moment of every day as well well let's let's show how long this has been going on because you do a great great job of that going backwards and bef- before I know you didn't push hard on this at all you have a christian background you said but but obviously a lot of the storytelling that you you just have done is all parables that were were uh, said by Jesus there's the parable of the seed that, that's what the garden the garden thing is all about you just told the the story about well we won't go into all that but but it's amazing how much of his compassionate ideas about mm-hmm. how to deal with other people um, have just sunk totally into Western culture, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's secular or Christian. It, it's, it's, it's sunk in there as, a, as, a, as one of the basic storytelling ideas that are behind us. Yes. What's often missed is that he, he, he said, you know, be as, as gentle as doves, but he also said be as wise as snakes, you know, mm-hmm. he, at the same time. That is, you, you, don't, you don't be stupid about it, 
and just let yourself become a victim, unfortunately, uh, because of his personal life. It looks like he was a victim uh, to a lot of people. But, but what he said was just the opposite. Don't, don't let other people abuse you. You can get around them. You can, mm-hmm. you can deal with them in a way. And he certainly wasn't always polite. So, uh, but let's go back much further um, and uh, talk about the one from uh, Egypt, uh, Ptahotep, I think he said. Um, one of the oldest things there is is about civility. I, I thought that was great. Well, that's right. And two quick points before we we pivot to ancient Egypt. There's this great book I want to commend to um, your listeners if you haven't aren't already familiar with it um, by a secular classicist called Tom Holland. His book is called Dominion, and it's about how Christianity changed the world. Mm-hmm. It, it it formed the world as we know it. it. Gave us this this concept of of caritas of charity mm-hmm. that was foreign to the ancient Greco-Roman pagan world, and you know, this notion of the Imago Dei, um, this notion uh, that is an explicitly Judeo-Christian notion that 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 all human beings have worth. We, we have the imprint of the divine. God created us in this image, this philosophical, theological idea, the Imago Dei, that is the intellectual lineage of human rights. And everyone's all for human rights today, right? right? But we, we insufficiently appreciate where this idea came from. And we insufficiently appreciate that this has not, universal human rights have not been a foregone conclusion for most of human history. That again, um, rights were given to citizens, right? To people of a certain skin color, of a certain certain class, of a certain wealth, right? There there, have always been these barriers to being treated with respect and and dignity often had uh, class and and racial um, uh, components to it, but but t- you know stripping stripping all of that down, like just to the that the, no every human being has worth, every human being has dignity, uh, and I, so anyway, if you, if you want to explore that more, that 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 you know the 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 Christian roots of this idea of dignity and human rights that 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 are attributable, you know, and this is he's not you know a Christian evangelist, he's he's secular, but says like right. this is just what the literature shows, so it's an excellent point, um, and then also you mentioned that Christ wasn't polite. I'd like to just, you know, hone in on that for a second. I have a section in my, in my book that uh, in my in, in my chapter on integrity, unpacking the difference between civility and politeness through the words and actions of Jesus Christ, you know, that he was unafraid to confront hypocrisy, to puncture the pretense and self-righteousness of people, of Pharisees, Sadducees, and others who thought that just by going through the motions, the religious rituals and, and rites of the day, doing the baths, you know, saying the prayers, that that was enough to, to save them, that that was not enough, Christ said. It was the internal disposition of the heart. It was the motivation uh, behind the act that mattered more, a contrite heart and spirit that, that in fact, Self-righteous, self-righteous acts could cover a really evil, sinful heart, and that one could be really cruel and malicious mm-hmm. while following the rules. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, tried to do to Christ. They tried to, you know, catch him breaking the rules, right? Like, you know, healing people on the Sabbath, raising people from the dead, like doing acts of of philanthropy, of benevolence. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet they condemned him for that because he's breaking the rules, right? Right, right, right? So talk about the disconnect between inner, inner and outer. And Christ was unafraid of calling people out. He was happy, you know, to, to express emotion, to emote anger, rage. Um, and, and that was an act of love. That's saying, I respect you enough to call you out for your sin, for your hypocrisy, for your selfishness. And that, that, and, and, and so Christ is a great example to us in that way of uh, this difference between civility and politeness, how actually loving someone, respecting someone, Means some, sometimes calling people out, telling hard truths, and not polishing over a difference, not not pretending someone is acting in a way 
uh, if someone's acting poorly, not pretending that doesn't exist, that, that actually loving someone means means having those uncomfortable conversations. So now back to your question about ancient Egypt. Yes, I, I go to the, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Before yeah. we go there, just, just to, for the re, uh, listeners, uh, that doesn't mean at your Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives that, you know, that you need to call them out at, right at the dinner. You wait until after the dinner is over. So. Oh, let's promise me. <laughs> promise me we'll still come, important. <laughs> promise me we'll come back to um, misplaced meaning and forgiveness, the final chapter of my book about yeah. how we've made idols out of politics and allowed politics to invade our dinner tables when it shouldn't. Like so, yeah. as we ha- I, we are we're just out of the Thanksgiving season and heading into the Christmas right. season, we'll we'll be with family, and I, I think that's appropriate and would be um, great to talk about. So, but yeah, back to um, ancient Egypt. So I, I start the book with the oldest story in the world. The Epic of Gilgamesh. And I'll let readers enjoy the book itself to unpack the, 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 the fruits and merits there, but to show that this is a timeless problem. This problem of how do we overcome our self-love and thrive, become fully human in relationship with others. This is not a new phenomenon. We hear a lot of people today, thoughtful people who say, you know, we're uniquely sad and rude and mean and polarized and divided. Mm. And, you know, that the reality is every era tends to feel that way. (laughs) This is what I learned across what by studying, you know, I'm a student of history. I love history. I love philosophy. But as I studied this literature of civility conduct, conduct manuals, etiquette, 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 ethics manuals from across history and culture, Mm -hmm. that every era tends to complain about kids these days. Mm -hmm. You know, TikTok hasn't always been around, but people, kids have been doing things that have annoyed and vexed their elders since, since the dawn of history. And in fact, Tahotep um, so wrote a book for the, the youth of his day as well, the oldest etiquette book in the world, the oldest book in the world, which is a manners book. It's on civility. So Tahotep was um, an advisor to the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. He had been in the room where it happens his entire life. Mm-hmm. He was even offered, he was, he'd reached the pinnacle of business, worldly, political success. And he was even offered the opportunity to become pharaoh of ancient Egypt and become the most powerful, you know, person in the, in the, in the known world. And yet he turned it all down the, to retire and live a quiet pastoral life. And once he had retired from public life, he reflected on the timeless principles of human flourishing. And he set pen to paper and, 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 and wrote down these maxims, his teachings, which he intended as a gift to the Pharaoh's son, hoping that they, that Pharaoh's son would uh, adopt these, these principles and become a wise and just ruler. They ended up being very widely consumed, these maxims, across Egyptian um, society, but especially by youth and even across history as well. And what's remarkable is that even though these maxims were penned nearly 4,000 years ago, they could be, they could appear in a Judith Martin Miss Manners uh, book. Mm. Uh, our column in the Washington Post today. They're they're timeless. They're remarkably timeless. For example, Tahotep says, do not abuse a power differential. He says, if you have authority over someone, be gentle and gracious to them. Don't be cruel to the vulnerable in society. Tahotep says, don't be good to your friends and neighbors just when you need something. <laughs> be, be good to them all the time, you know, like countering the very logic of the world that the, you know, that the baser impulse in ourselves to want to put ourselves before others and, you know, be nice to people when we need stuff. Uh, he says, no, don't do that. He just said, be good to them just because they're people, just because they're your friends and neighbors. He says, 
four clearly or five times. In, clearly your colleague in Washington, D.C. never read that. Exactly. <laughs> I love I love to re reprint Tahotep and other and other of these gems from this this genre that's like very much forgotten and overlooked today. So um he says in four or five different maxims, um, don't gossip. Mm -hmm. Do not slander someone behind their back. Don't malign them. Don't hurt their reputation when they can't defend themselves. You know, of course, he he probably said, you know, do it to a, do it to their face if you must. Like at least give them a fair <laughs> chance to defend. But um, but you know, and 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 there is we see these and other principles surface. These maxims surface time and time again, and all of them get to the very essence of true civility, as I define it, which is restraining the ego restraining the worst parts of our self-love so that we can flourish and, and live our best life, fulfill our, um, fulfill our potential as human beings in community and in relationship with others. And so I love that, um, you know, this book written 4,000 years ago is just as, as relevant and, and, and timely uh, today. And what's great is that though the this 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 book so so there there was often this this intellectual lineage um you know this this core of human wisdom about how to flourish across difference of how to how to how to flourish in general um that was passed on from time from from place to place as these these, these custodians of of this tradition you know perpetuated it and and reinterpreted old wisdom for our contemporary audience which is which is very much the tradition I see myself in today uh, but yet people like Tahotep and others they often came to these ideas independent of one another. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they were just thoughtful observers of the human condition mm -hmm. and the human experience and thought, you know, what works? They, they assessed it. They, went, they approached it inductively. Like, which behavior is conducive to human flourishing? Which, which detracts from it? And they, they derive these principles from, from observation, you know, again, independent of, of, of a sort of intellectual lineage. And I just think that's absolutely fascinating and so, so important that, um, that, that we can, we can appreciate this wisdom today. And this wisdom can still teach us and instruct us because we have a shared humanity that, you know, and we have so much more in common with people, much more in common with people who live four millennia ago than we, than we realize or appreciate. Mm -hmm. So we have that ancient Egyptian culture. And uh, just as an aside, one of my favorite uh, uh, translations of hieroglyphics is from about 5,000 years ago, and it's a teacher complaining wow. about the students. And he's saying, he's saying <laughs> Tale as old as time. It's, They're it's not doing their reading, you're cheating, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, he said, you know, when I was a new teacher, every, the people were really well behaved and everything, and et cetera, and he talked about how good they were, but today they have no respect and everything. And I, you, you can see right away that the big problem is actually the, the, the variation in age between the teacher and his students. When they start their, their, you know, he was probably 20 and the kids were 12. And, you know, when he's finished, he's 50 or 60 and, and the kids are still 12. And, and that's a totally different dynamic. So that's probably the source of the misbehavior of the kids is, is the age of, of the teachers. But, um, but let's go to a couple of other cultures because you, you, you uh, show that it's in China, uh, the concept of Ren, I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then we'll go to India. So let's go to China next. Um, so India, so yeah, China, um, they, this concept of Ren, which is central to Confucian philosophy. First of all, Confucius has a, a fabulous life and, and great story. If you don't, if you don't know it, he was someone who, you know, cared about wisdom, cared about the educational project and cared deeply about the human social project and the ability for us to improve morally in community with others. He, he really believed deeply in moral improvement and he believed in um, the possibility of human flourishing through um, 
through perfecting us and 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 and, and polishing us in, in in society with others. And he, you know, read a lot, studied deeply, thought deeply, and he desperately wanted his ideas to be taken to heart by a ruler in his day. And he wanted to be, you know, the, the, the hand of the king, the second in command. He was advising the king and, and see his ideas take root. And, 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 you know, he had all his ideas in theory. He wanted to test them in practice. Mm-hmm. And for several years of his life, he traveled across ancient China, trying to find a ruler, you know, knocking on doors saying, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a traveling roving philosopher for hire. Will you <laughs> take me in? <laughs> and no one would have him. And oh. so he went back to his town, discouraged and despondent. And yet he said to himself, I'm not done. I'm not going to give up. And he, you know, started his school and, and cultivated his disciples, cultivated his community. And he would never appreciate in his day the impact he had on 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 Chinese society, on the on Eastern philosophy, ethics, culture in general. Um we, we've heard it said that all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Mm-hmm. The same can be said in the East about Confucius, that all of Eastern philosophy is a footnote to Confucius. Um, and, and his work is beautiful. I encourage everyone to read the Analects and spend some time just like marinating in their, in their beauty and wisdom. He's just so insightful. But he says, um, he just has a, a really high view of the human of the human being and the human social project. It is explicitly humanistic. And that is what Ren, which is this, this idea that is so central to um to Confucian philosophy is. It's actually two characters. It's it's um it's the Chinese character for a person and then and then com- and then and then two, like the number two. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind of uh, you know analogous to this idea of Ubuntu. Like a person becomes a person through others, and this this kind of a, this African proverb and, and concept that we become fully human in community. The idea of Ren it, it it's rendered as as common humanity and as humaneness. And what's beautiful about that is that the Chinese character again is is about community itself. Mm-hmm. It's it's the, the the character for a person, but also two like two people coming together in, in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, what I what I love about human about Ren is that we we see the surface and it's all, it's all about restraint. You know, it's all about restraining ourselves what we might otherwise want for the sake of of community with others. So seeing the same expression, the same idea, this humanistic project surface and and manifest um, with um, the good life is a life in community, but it's but it's hard. And, and not always easy. <laughs> so let's go to uh, maybe the second century BC in India and uh, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and the Mahabharata includes the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most famous thing, and a lot of people read that in the 60s and 70s here in America too. Plus uh, Thoreau and, and Emerson all liked it as well. So you, you mentioned that as uh, the Indian version of talking about the concept of civility. So why don't you just mention that? Well, we're going to skip over quickly over a couple of other uh, famous people that you mentioned and people can get more uh, from your book. But then we'll go to questions from the audience. If, you, if anybody has a question that's watching from the live stream, you can put it in the chat. We already have four or five. Uh, so um, if you'd like to add to the conversation, go right ahead. Well, the 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 Gita and and the Mahabharat and uh, Ramayana are, are I am by no means an expert. I should say I've been to India, but I'm by no means an expert. And you know, they, it's 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 it's, impo- it's it would be impossible to do justice to them, as you know. They're right. um, longer than the Odyssey and the Iliad, like ten times over. Like they're just you know these incredible epics, these treasures of of um, 
of, of Sanskrit and Indian tradition. Um, but in the Gita, there is this concept that is that is central to um, the Hindu philosophy of, of self-sacrifice, of, 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 of restraint being the stuff of the good life and necessary to, to human flourishing um, and, and to community. So I don't do justice to these, these sacred texts, but I did want to draw this through line. And that's what I do in this entire chapter is draw this through line across sacred and, and, and secular and ethical and philo- philosophical traditions uh, about how the good life is the life of, of restraint, of self-discipline, of voluntarily self-controlling, you know, our self-love um, for the sake of, of of the good life with others. And, and I talk about in the book how civility, this this restraint for the sake of others is both an inherent good mm-hmm. because people deserve respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. Mm-hmm. But it is also an instrumental good as well. Like, and I, I have a whole chapter on, you mentioned Thoreau. Mm. I have a whole chapter in my book on civil disobedience, reclaiming the whole tradition of civil, of, of, of civil disobedience in my conception of civility mm. as distinct from, from mere politeness so that it, it can be a tool of, of efficating justice and social equality in our world today. And it can, it has been, and can do that for us today as well. Let's talk about this idea of restraint because we, it's, it's not, it sounds like shackling uh, the personality. Um, but I, I wanted to point out that if, if you have a really great actor or actress, it's usually they're much more powerful when they're restrained hmm. and then their emotion comes out even more strongly as, as, if, as if the disciplined version has hmm. more power than the undisciplined version. And restraint is not a word that you hear in our society very much right now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some unrestrained mm-hmm. uh, people uh, near near the top of society that mm. that uh, tend tend to create a fad in the opposite direction. But that kind of re- restraint, I mean, and restraint is as you, as you say in your book is key to civility. So why don't you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about restraint? Is not really a shackle; it's some uh, a method of creating more power uh, in your effect. Um, That's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, and 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 that there is freedom. Mm-hmm. in restraints. There's actually freedom. It's like, you know, if you're a billionaire, but a drug addict and enslaved right. to a substance, are you really free? And that, that early discipline, like saying no to a substance early on that, that that's, you know, some might call that a shackle, right? Why not just purely indulge, but then overindulgence becomes its own master, its own, its own slave. I'll tell, I'll tell a story about that. So I, I talk about St. Augustine uh, in my book and in my chapter one, mm-hmm. Augustine is an important intellectual influence on me. Of course, a very important, like North African philosopher, incredibly influenced uh, from Algeria, incredibly influential on, on, on all of like human philosophy, but especially Western philosophy and Neoplatonist. Um, but he, in the city of God, he, you know, uh, he buys into this, this, uh, this duality of human nature mm-hmm. that, that I unpack throughout the book, that the social and the selfish. And, and he says that an expression of our self-love, he calls the incurvitus in say, the inward curve upon the self that is this indelible uh, feature of the human spirit, that it's like gravity, that this inward curve upon the self is just always part of who we are, which again is why we have to be mindful of it and and, and resist it day in, day day out, uh, and not let it dominate us to uh, the point of of, of inhibiting our, our flourishing long-term. And he, he says an, a negative expression of that incurvitus in se is what he calls the libido dominandi, mm. the lust 
to dominate that we all have. That is an expression of our, you know, fallen, selfish human nature that um, you, you, you mentioned a quote earlier about how it, we can delight in cruelty and it's like perverse delight in seeing the suffering of others like that, that is, that is monstrous. And, and, um, but, but Augustine says it's, it's wordplay in the original Latin that he says, the more that we indulge the libido dominandi, this lust to dominate, it becomes the dominating lust, the, the lust dominant becomes the, so that the, 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 the master becomes the slave to the lust. And so a, a story, I, I unpack the Epic of Gilgamesh and in light of that story, I unpack um, the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde in that, in that context as well. So Dr. Jekyll is this, you know, doctor with a pristine reputation, uh, well beloved by all in, in, in society. And yet he is, um, plagued with these these lusts, these desires, these baser impulses and instincts that he represses and he represses and he represses, he represses. And finally he feels like he can't repress any longer. And he creates this potion that he drinks at night and he allows himself to transform into the instantiation of these baser impulses and desires, which is the monstrous and cruel and barbaric Mr. Hyde who goes out at night in, in Edinburgh and um, wreaks havoc on society, kills people, robs people, just does all these things. And of course, he gets away with it with impunity because by day he's transformed back into the pristine um, uh, Dr. Jekyll. But something extraordinary happens. The more that Dr. Jekyll takes his potion and transforms into Mr. Hyde, the less he needs the potion to transform. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, he becomes Mr. Hyde permanently. He, he actually transforms into Mr. Hyde spontaneously and becomes Mr. Hyde permanently, who eventually kills him. And that is such an embodiment of the example that, um, or the, the idea that, that Augustine unpacks, that the lust to dominate becomes the dominating lust. Like he was, he was conquered. He was, he was vanquished by his lusts. In, um, in, in, in the end. And so that is where there is a role for restraint. There is freedom in self-imposed restraints by saying no. And, you know, saying no to what in a small way, um, restraining our, our self-interest in a small way so that we can be a part of, um, community with others and flourish more fully and, and freely. So you're right. We, we live today in what Charles Taylor called a cult of authenticity. You know, mm. we were told by society that if you're restraining yourself, you know, you're you're repressed and and you need to let loose and follow your heart and do what you want. Mm. And yet, people who live according to their their lust, their desires, their impulses, they're often not very happy. Mm. Um, and and you know, again, back to this idea that when you become dominated by your lust, you become enslaved to them as well. And true freedom is actually in restraint. It's an interesting point you make there uh, for a political point, which is that the masters in a slavery situation become the slaves of the slaves in a way. And if more, more people realize that, it wouldn't be popular. I mean, obviously, it's... it's, it's can we really can we pause there for a second? That is such a that is such a great point that I don't think yeah. made it into the book. But like dur this is this was debated during um, dur in the Civil War era mm -hmm. in America, like after the Civil War, there was this debate um, Many Northerners were convinced, like they 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 questioned, could slaveholding Southerners, could they be reintegrated into post Civil War America? Could they be reintegrated to the Union? And there there this question exists because people thought and argued that owning another human being 
abusing them, being a tyrant, mm. that obviously hurt the, the enslaved, obviously. Mm. But it also deformed the soul. It made tyrants of the soul of the slaveholder mm. and made them utterly unfit for self-governance, which is what a democracy required. That they had become... They had become they had, exactly what you said, that the lust to dominate had become the dominating lust, that they thought that that was a, a society of not of not um, souls that were conducive to democratic regime, but they were oligarchs. There's a great book by I think a scholar named Forrest Nabors that retells the story of the Civil War in light of a clash of regimes like the South was an oligarchy of the elites ruling the masses and America. In, in, in aspiration, especially after the, after the Civil War, was a democracy, you know, equality of all people under the law and and equality of citizens. And could an oligarchy be compatible with a democracy? And many thought no, but it, it goes back to that exact point uh, that you made. You probably, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the South uh, was very conscientious about creating this, you know, back to our, this core argument of the book about Mm -hmm. um, the difference between civility and politeness, that the South was very um, uh, conscientious, conscious about uh, having a culture of gentility mm -hmm. and chivalry. The Knights of the Round Table, the, the tales of King Arthur, those were the lore that they modeled the many parts of Southern society after. They, they they had coats of arms. They they reinvigorated the joust. Yeah. You know, like they they said they wanted they they aspired to be the these these chivalrous you know gentle gentle and noble men and women, and yet, it was a society propagated by the subjugation mm. of a class of human beings. Mm -hmm. Like to, to, and, and so talk about the difference between politeness, like focusing on the polish in a society, the expense of true civility. A, a society grounded in true civility, and what I argue in my book, a true civilization, is respect of the equal dignity of all persons, mm -hmm. right? Not just people of a certain skin color, of a certain class, of a certain wealth, of a certain talent, of a certain merit, of all human beings. So it's fascinating that this is a timeless question. It's one that's throughout our history and one that is exceptionally, exquisitely relevant to our own moment now. Well, I'm going to mention you, you, that you mentioned Marcus Aurelius several times, uh, and it's interesting. <laughs> That, that Marcus Aurelius is, is an emperor, you know, a Roman emperor, and yet, yet very interested in this idea of civility as well, in spite of the fact that obviously he was a military general and everything. But we, I want to get to the questions. Uh, so the other person that I wanted to mention, you have lots of really interesting characters, but you mentioned Erasmus, and you have one line about Erasmus from a, a man who lived in the 1500s, um, that he had these ideas which were to, to, to reform certain things and then they got carried away by uh, Luther in another direction and so on. And he was the civil one, and therefore mm -hmm. he's overlooked. Uh, Absolutely. This unsung he hero. In Absolutely. Uncivil time, you get overlooked if you're the civil one. But. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like that's, you know, tiny footnote, if we can just pause there for a second, that this has kind of been a hamstring to my work gaining traction over the years that I've been working on this project. Like my, my book, this is a product of a lifetime of thought and a decade of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially I've been working like a city, especially assiduously since I left government five years ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of captive, uh, restrained and almost hamstrung by the subject matter, the very temperate, like ironic, ecumenical subject matter I'm, I'm writing about because I'm not going to say the things that, you know, an MSNBC or a Fox News producer might want me to say to get on television, right? right like that's right. what's that's what's rewarded. And, and, you know, we all know this. There are, there are producers who say, you know, you say this about that person, you know, you say what you, you say the right. party line, 
and we'll make you famous. Like you'll be on television or like on social media. Like I don't get on there and, and say the incendiary inflammatory things that go viral, right? Get the hate clicks. And like, that is what our culture rewards right now. And, and, and that is always, it has always been thus. It has right. always been this. That's what I love about the story of of Erasmus. And mm-hmm. you know, if we had more time, we could talk about Luther, the original, the original uh, viral user of social media, right, the right, social right, media, the <laughs> printing press, right. And so, anyway, if that, this is like a call to arms. I hope this book, like, help me make the ideas of this book a success and counter this culture that rewards the incendiary and the inflammatory. And like, my book is all about these unsung heroes of temperance, of moderation, of wisdom, of grace that do not get the dap that they're due but deserve it. I have this whole you know, my my life. I want to spend my my life writing these biographies of of uh, these pop biographies of people we've never heard of, but have changed our world in ways. Right. But but they 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 you know they weren't they weren't self promotion promotional and marketers. And so I'm yeah. happy to to promote them uh, even thousands of years after they've died because uh, they deserve it. And these are stories that can capture and imagine our imagination and inspire us now. You had you have a great one about somebody who worked for Madison uh, and ended up becoming governor of Illinois, and he wrote to Jefferson about his hypocrisy about slavery. Which I'll I'll leave that story for for the readers of the book too, because it's a great story about yes. a character who Edward Coles, an yeah, exceptional Coles, story. Right. Um, so uh, let's let's take some uh, questions from the audience. And uh, first one: Have you noticed general civility waxes or wanes with societal conditions? Although a minority of consistently civil people seem to manage regardless. Oh, I just thought of another thing I wanted to say, which was uh, in another book. I'm interviewing somebody in, in another uh, hour and a half, but there's a quote from Milton Friedman that says that the whole point of having ideas is so that, that the ideas are never used unless there's a time of crisis. Um, but it's important to discuss it and keep those ideas alive so that when things really fall apart, people will have something to pick up. And, mm-hmm. and I, I like to mention that to everybody who works on ideas because mm-hmm. whatever you have to, as you said, you have to be true to your ideas. Otherwise, you lose, you lose the whole thread, and you, even if you get more attention for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. But you've, you've, you've lost the consistency of your ideas mm-hmm. by doing that. But if you stick to it, then, then those ideas are sitting there, again, reminding everybody, oh, this has been used well many, many times, over the years, it hasn't. It's not the majority view, that's for sure. Civility is mm-hmm. not the majority view, but there have been many civil societies that have been some of the most productive societies that human mm-hmm. beings have created. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then, civility, incivility starts to break it all down. But let me go back to that. Have you noticed general civility waxes or wanes with societal conditions? Although a minority of consistently civil people seem to manage regardless. No, it's an excellent question because a, a core argument of my book is that this is, again, this is not a new problem. We hear a lot of people today that are very apocalyptic, claiming that we're on the brink of a civil war and things have never been so bad. And that's actually not the case, thankfully. Like things have been, I love to say that history is both a caution Mm -hmm. and a comfort. It's a caution to us because, you know, in in, in the context of, if if you zoom out and look at the story of human history, conflict is the default like Mm. conflict is the norm relative peace and prosperity is the exception Mm. and thankfully in our world today that's the inverse is true Mm. uh you know in our own in our own history like our our country was founded by revolutionary war we fought a civil war we've had you know profound um dehumanization and conflict like like human history is a, is a story of conflict mm-hmm. and um and that's that's a caution to us because peace and prosperity is not a foregone conclusion and if we're not careful and if we don't each take the responsibility we each have to take seriously that responsibility to preserve our 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 society our democracy our free way of life 
then it could it could be violent and 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 once again so it's it's, it's caution but also a comfort to us that it's been bad before it can get again and yet it's not as bad as it could be yet <laughs> so <laughs> history's caution and comfort but i mean t- to some extent Yes, um, epiphenomena in a society, societal, technological, demographic changes, like epiphenomena will always stress society. It will it will test our trust in institutions, our trust in each other. And we're seeing that now with um with with social media, trust in our institutions, that trust in our elections, trust in um, you know, our, our our public leaders. And and we always want something to blame. This is this is crucial that yes, there are epi- epiphenomena can be stressors to to this problem but the the, the problem of incivility um, is timeless and it's human it's a part of the human condition and so you know just as one public leader and one new technology is not the cause although we might want to blame them and point fingers yep. um, similarly you know one public policy one book even is not the solution, right? Like, and, and, and the fact is that we should have a humble, we should humbly approach this question because it's insolvable. It's only like made better or worse by, again, each and every one, every one of us in our everyday. My theory of social change is inherently individualistic. It's inherently local. The, the subtitle of my book is, is how to heal, uh, you know, the soul of civility subtitle, um, timeless principles to heal society and ourselves. Right. And my theory of social change is that by healing ourselves that we can heal society too yeah absolutely and 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 the method is education which you talk about and uh, one of the questions is what should schools do to teach uh, students true civility so i um in my chapter on education i actually really emphasize the home that is where these values these and again my um the educational project has been and should once again be explicitly about cultivating, creating good humans and cultivating our our humanity and, and our, uh, helping us appreciate the profound gift of being human and thereby appreciating the, the humanity, the gift of being human in others too. That is the antidote to these dehumanizing, barbaric and divided times that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, where we are very quick to de- dehumanize and, and devalue the life of of people we disagree with, we differ from, and that's that's always tempting when the stakes are high because then it makes it easier to justify doing and saying whatever is necessary to win and to and to and to get them and to and to get ahead. And so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. Uh, people who who feel that way, you know, that you can you can just ride over a whole other group. Don't have any history, or, or at least are ignoring it, because I mean, all these groups are way too big for anybody to roll over. They're all different civilizations that have a different way of, of doing something. Some of the things are exactly the same, as you said. There's there's a strain of, of civil thought in every single civilization, or they wouldn't have a, a civilization. Um, but but there's billion of the of, of one group, and a billion of another group, and a billion of another group, and you're not they're not going to go away, and they're not going to change overnight. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it'd probably be better for all of us to become civil before we try to <laughs> tell them how to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, another question. Um, do you, events like um, the NSDAPS regime aren't isolated unto themselves. Do you see such things arise under desperate circumstances that desperate societies choose desperado leaders? I don't know what NSDAPS stands for, actually. 
Yeah, I I don't either. Um, I'll, I'll comment quickly on a, a something you said just a moment ago before you got to the question actually about how it's easier to point fingers at other people than look at ourselves. I mean, Christ said that, right? Why are yeah, you looking yeah. at the speck of your brother in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? But also Erasmus has a great line about this. So Erasmus, like back, hold back on him for a second. He was an intellectual superstar of the 16th century. And he, you know, was just this genius, this roaming philosopher, scholar, much like, much like um, Confucius, mm-hmm. actually. And un- unlike Confucius, who was turned away wherever he went, every every kingdom he went to in China, uh, Erasmus was welcomed. He was the most coveted dinner guest in all of Europe. And he would just, you know, every two years, he would live in another castle and tutor another prince and just like, you know, be wined and dined because he was just delightful and a great conversation. He was he's most famous today. You know, talk about how he's not claimed really to history. He he you know, he was a devout Christian. He was a critical of the Catholic Church. Um, you know, corruption, indulgences, all these different things. And and it's said that uh, Erasmus uh, laid the egg that Luther hatched. That all of his ideas about criticisms in the Catholic Church were later taken up by Luther, who eventually eventually left the Catholic Church and started the Protestant Reformation. But today, no one claims him. Right, the Catholics don't claim him because he was critical of the Catholic Church, even though he never left the Catholic Church. And the Protestants certainly don't claim him because you know he never left the Catholic Church, and he and Luther famously had a falling out. So he's lost to history. He's really only known for one thing in history. He's claimed by like secular scholars because of his Greek New Testament translations. Like right. you know, just an absolute genius, but he cared deeply about manners to the extent that they supported just the pleasantness of, of human social life and human flourishing. And so he wrote this book called A Handbook on Manners for Children that you can go on Amazon and buy mm-hmm. right now, or better yet, ask your local bookstore to carry it and then support your local bookstore that way. So <laughs> anyway, um, he he said uh, this handbook on manners that he published, like again, he's a scholar, a true genius, and he published a book on manners that was an international bestseller overnight. It like didn't go out of print for 200 years and was translated into every European language. And it's the only book that I'm aware of, the etiquette book that I'm aware of, that categorizes mandates by body part. You know, he has a section on the eyes, what to do and what not to do, the nose, the mouth, just like very funny. Uh, he's he's peculiarly against winking, I remember. Like he says, do not <laughs> wink. Um, but, but his final maxim, which is so reminiscent of what you said a moment ago, and, you know, again, our, our our tendency today is to blame, right? Like this person, this thing is the problem, right? And and Erasmus, he says like, you know, the, the epitome of all manners can be summed up in this maxim, his final maxim in the book. And he says, readily ignore the faults of others and avoid falling short yourself, which I think is just such a, a great way to end a book and and maybe a way to, to conclude our conversation. I don't know if we're close to the no, end. No, no, it, it, it's perfect. It's the last time I'm just going to add a, a, a personal note to that because I just got back from uh, a couple of weeks ago from Basel, Switzerland, where I was with uh, my, two of my brothers, uh, one of them who's an Erasmus scholar, and we went to the, the uh, publishing uh, house where he, his stuff was published and they had a copy of his Bible, uh, 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 the, the Greek New Testament version. Mm. And I wanted to throw in uh, just one little detail, which was that he did part of his work at uh, Thomas More's house in, uh, in London. Yes, he uh, did. Uh, I've been there. It's called Crosby Hall in London. It's magnificent. Right. Yes. And, and, and who helped him with his Greek translation was Thomas More's oldest daughter. Oh, she, wow. She was a Greek and Latin scholar as well, Margaret. Um, there's, there's a little piece on that in, in A Man for All Seasons, the play in the movie. Um, that the daughter, the king is amazed that she can speak Latin and everything. But there's, there's good stories about how she helped correct that. certain little things. And it's always good to find 
the, the women who, who uh, added to the scholar's reputation. And often, you know, the, the great, the great men in history, like gave opportunities to women, right? They celebrated right. the abilities and achievements and nurtured that, like what an opportunity for Margaret. I didn't realize that was her name, um, which is also my grandmother's name and also yeah. my daughter's name, Sophia Margot. So it's a great, great <laughs> name. Um, but, but, you know, that, that they saw that ability and nurtured it. Like that's beautiful and a testament to, to care. Another one is John Stuart Mill, who, you know, fell in love with his wife, Harriet. And like, they were true like you know they loved each other but they were intellectual companions and he wrote his treatise on the equality of women and why women should have the vote um largely because he was like in love with his wife who was an absolute genius you know that like it's a testament i think to 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 men across history who were champions of of women and other and other you know historically oppressed minorities or overlooked you know populations for for you know just who are automatically discarded as having any merit or ability to contribute to society just by virtue of one aspect of who they are and how foolish that's been for all of our civilizations because we just throw away half the talent and uh, that's exactly or, or right. more. And, exactly. and what is that for? You know, right. Uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's uh, the soul of civility to extend it out to everybody. Yeah. Amen. That's great. So thank you very much, uh, Alexander. This was a great interview and a very interesting book, The Soul of Civility. Uh, so ends another event, the Commonwealth Club in our 121st year of enlightened discussion. We hope you come back for more. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.